everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, except this week I've been focusing not on Stephen King, but on his hard-boiled alter ego, the dastardly Richard Bachman, who authored Thinner. Today, I'll examine 1996's Tom Holland adaptation starring John Robert Burke and Joe Montana. Before I get any further, I just wanted to take the opportunity to share a listener email, this one from Ashley. And as you know from previous episodes, I just, I really look forward to getting um, listener email. I've been uh, tweeting to a lot of you out there. Um, Instagram has always been a great source of uh, interaction. But I just, you know, call me a sucker for old-fashioned emails. I just, I think that you're able to you know, get so much out of that that back and forth. And as always, everyone, please feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and just share about your Stephen King experiences because a lot of you have been writing that you don't have an outlet for Stephen King, that maybe either you're not um, friends with people that read Stephen King or there, there aren't, you know, any places for you to go to to really get into the Stephen King um, world. So if this is a resource for you guys, I, I want to be able to make it as applicable to you as possible. So share your stories so I can share them with others. So this is from Ashley. I was so happy when I saw your podcast through Twitter. I've been listening to every podcast that I can that discusses Stephen King. I started with Better Off Undead that used to discuss all things horror, but it's now just about random and really funny discussions. Then I started the Stephen King podcast by Lilia and Lou, and then Books and Nachos, where the main guy is reading a review of everything in publication order. This podcast is paired with the Now Playing podcast, which is doing the movies while the other is covering the books. Before 2012, I had only read three of his books, my first being Desperation. The other two were called Cell and Bag of Bones. Starting in 2012, I decided to give him a real shot, and since then, I've read a little more than half of his works, several of which I've read multiple times since 2012. Misery, It, The Stand, The Shining, Tommyknockers, and Salem's Lot. My favorites hand down are It, Misery, and Dumakee. It is the best audiobook I've ever listened to, which is surprising since the narrator is Stephen Weber from Wings. His portrayal of Pennywise is absolutely terrifying, and I'm going to interject myself. Um, you don't have to say that's surprising. Um, I am a huge uh, Joe and Brian Hackett fan, okay? I loved Wings. If I was going to do another podcast, um, aside from the Stephen King cast, I would do the Hackett Brothers cast, okay? I would... Um, be there uh, talking all about Lowell and Roy Biggins and Antonio um, Sandpiper Aircast. It's coming 2016. Just wait for it. But seriously, though, um, Stephen Weber, I think probably the worst thing that he could have done was the Shining uh, miniseries. I know that that has a lot of fans, um, and you got to give him credit for stepping into a role that made Jack Nicholson. It's, I mean, when you think of Jack Torrance, you don't think of Stephen Weber, you think of, of Jack Nicholson. So, you know, kudos to, to Stephen Weber for, for jumping and doing it. And with that said, I think that Stephen Weber did a really good job, um, in what I think was ultimately just for reasons that had nothing to do with Stephen Weber, just not, uh, 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 an adaptation that I thought was very effective. 
Um, but no, I mean, that, that guy has so much charisma, um, whether it, you know, he, he show it on, on wings or even on a like very minuscule, um, cameo in, um, I think party down, uh, where he was like a Russian mob boss, but he just brought so much life and he was able to do so much like with his facial expressions. Steven Weber's great. So you don't have to convince me that Steven, uh, Weber, uh, was amazing. Um, because Steven Weber is fantastic. And I love that his television brother went on to star also in a Stephen King uh, miniseries, uh, Storm of the Century. And I think that Tim Daly did a great job in Storm of the Century as well. So I'm glad to see that the Hackett brothers are, are out there, uh, you know, keeping the, the Stephen King world alive. Um, but I am not a huge listener of audiobooks, but I would love to see what, or love to listen to what Stephen Weber, you know, brings to the portrayal of Pennywise. I think that that's great. Um, but then Ashley continues, uh, I talk about his works any chance I can when chatting with friends and have loaned out my audio of Under the Dome to four people so far. I'm doing my part to try and grow his fandom by showing others how wonderfully deep, vivid, heartbreaking, and terrifying his books can be. And I'm going to interject again. So that's the thing. You know, I mean, thank you, Ashley, and thank you for everyone that's trying to get people that haven't read Stephen King at this point to get into Stephen King. Because I think that, I don't know, I don't know how old you are, Ashley, but um, I, I grew up in a world of Stephen King where Stephen King was on fire. And I think that in in, in current generations and in this day and age he's i don't know he, he's not of this generation he's an older man from an older generation so he might not be as it you don't want to necessarily go to that um but there is a reason why he is quote unquote the king of horror you know there's a reason for it there was a reason why for decades he's been around I mean, for 40 years now he's been pumping out these books um he has whether you you like him or dislike him you, you can't argue with the fact that he has shaped storytelling and the sensibilities of storytelling either directly or indirectly because who knows how many things he's put in place that has inadvertently shaped the next generation of storytellers so i mean he so like i said i mean even if it, it's not necessarily your style or you didn't think that you, you'd like him I, I think that you'll you'll be surprised because a lot of people out there only know him from the movies and the movies don't they don't they don't do him justice so um as thinner uh will attest to as I get into it in a little bit. But um but yeah, I so thank you, Ashley, for for spreading the the love of Stephen King and spreading the word. And then uh, she finishes by uh, writing, as a short, funny story, it seems like every time I read The Stand, a cold runs rampant around my office. Every time I hear a cough, I want to yell that it's Captain Trips. So I'll sign off by saying thank you for your wonderful podcast. Sincerely yours, a constant reader. Ashley. So thank you so much for writing in, Ashley. Um, feel free to write in again. Um, you know, and, and some of the books that you said that you have read multiple times, uh, you know, It, The Stand, um, you know, as you know, I, that those two stand um, head and shoulders above most of his other works. And I am currently, at the moment of this publication, uh, reading the Dark Half, 1989's The Dark Half, which means if you're looking in the chronological order of publication, the book that follows The Dark Half is 1990's unabridged edition of The Stand, which I am 
both soul looking forward to and freaking out because I know how much effort and time the it uh, review took me. So uh, this one, it's it's a daunting task, but I gotta say that I cannot wait to get out of the 1980s. Um, I remember that when I, uh, I think Firestarter was the first book of the 1980s um, for Stephen King, and I was so pumped to be in the 80s, and it seems like so long ago, I can't wait to move into the 1990s. The 1990s was a good decade um, for Stephen King books. I think that when people tend to think of his uh, classics, I think they think of his 80s works, but I think of his 90s um, books more so than his 80s. But I'll get to that once we get to the 90s. Um... So, with uh, the listener email uh, finished for now, um, like I said, everyone feel free to to write in. I just I love the back and forth, so please, please uh, feel free to write in. Now, okay, we're about to get into thinner. Um, okay, so as you'll know from the uh, episode review of the book, uh, thinner is the only supernatural Richard Bachman entry at this point. Now, later, he's going to go on to publish the companion piece to Stephen King's Desperation, uh, The Regulators, which also includes supernatural elements. But for now, Thinner is at times a departure from what Bachman has delivered to us so far. And in other ways, is a reminder of who Richard Bachman was. You know, namely, the ending of the book is right up Bachman's alley. It's so devilishly pessimistic and punishing. It flies in the face of my argument that Stephen King is an optimistic writer whose characters may go through hardships and may even die, but good wins out at the end. Bachman, however, paints a completely different portrait. Bachman is the bloodthirsty, devilish imp on King's shoulder, the one who doesn't see the good in humanity, only the worst qualities of ourselves, and sets out to punish the characters, whether it be in the long walk, the road, the running man, or with thinner. In regards to the movie, um, I'm not sure I ever saw it, you know, maybe for a few seconds here and there, but I don't recall uh, ever sitting down to watch it. So, you know, I was looking forward to it um, when I saw that it was on Netflix because I don't have that previous um, association of, of watching it. Or maybe I did watch it and I don't remember it because that's the kind of movie that Thinner is. So here's my analysis. The movie begins with the introduction to the caravan of gypsies driving through the mist. Uh, One car, by the way, is clearly the Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters, which I thought was cool. The caravan drives by a house where we meet Billy, who watches the caravan drive by and proceeds to complain about gypsies like we live in a world where complaining about gypsies is an issue that people have to complain about. Now, I kind of touched upon this... um, in the book, it was something I loved about the book. Uh, it's something I love about the movie. And, you know, I, I I don't know if it was just because of when it was written or not. I don't know. But, I mean, like, gypsies are almost synonymous with carnies uh, in this particular story. Um, but the fact that it's so specifically, like, Romanian European gypsies with, uh, you know, with, the like, the, the, like, Gina has the skirts. And they're all accented, even though most of them have lived in the United States forever. Uh, it's just, it's absurd that it's gypsies are the problem. In in this movie, it's like 1996, and gypsies are the problem. So Billy heads into the bathroom on the scale, where we learn that he's 300 pounds. So, okay, let's just, I, 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 we got to get it out of the way, okay? Um, I, I've 
you know, insinuated it already. We're, we're just over 10 minutes in. I've dropped a couple uh, pot shots at the movie. But look, the movie isn't great, okay? Um, what I like about it, it's that, um, you know, it's proof that you can adapt a king, um, or in this case, a Bachman book, um, in a number of different ways, right? You know, so I, the decision was made to play this movie comically, okay? You know, I mean, at no point do I ever feel that there's a threat and so because it's always played for cheesy terror, it's always played for broad laughs. You know, I mean, and the broad comedy starts with John Robert Burke, who plays the character big. Now, I don't mean fat. I just mean big. You know, I, I thought first that maybe it's because he's in a fat suit, an unconvincing fat suit, by the way. Um, but it's a whole movie. You know, so it isn't limited to, to Burke. And it's nothing against him. He's just a symptom rather than the cause. You know, in fact, with what he's tasked to do, you know, he's pretty successful. Um, it's the tone. It's the tone of this movie. Um, that's the issue here. You know, regardless, and I'm going to get back into the tone. I just want to kind of keep my running thoughts going. But we get a pretty authentic and fun scene at the breakfast table with the family, um, allowing the screenwriter to deliver necessary exposition about the case, which includes the mafia. Billy and his daughter have fun with each other, doing their best Marlon Brando impersonation. Uh, it's a fun, you know, naturalistic way to deliver the necessary information. Um, and also having Billy defend Ginelli, it's, it's a smart way to streamline the involvement of the Mafia. Rather than in the book, which included a friendship based on Billy falling into the same circles as Ginelli. Um, you know, just by getting Ginelli off, it makes for a much simpler explanation. And the fact that Janelli now feels like he owes Billy, it's a much cleaner way to introduce him into the third act. So, you know, good, you know, I, I'm going to take some pot shots. I've already taken some. I'm going to take some more at the book, at the movie. But um, I do have to give credit where credit's due. This was a, a nice streamlining of the character and his involvement into the plot. Uh, the Gypsies uh, then shut up, set up shop outside of the law firm. And we get a look at the Gypsies in action. You know, especially Gina with her slingshot and her Romanian beauty. Then we meet the judge who uh, serves as the town, um, well, I, I get the, the town judge, uh, by forcing the police chief uh, to shoo them away. You know, and all the while, Billy is just staring at Gina like she's a rack of ribs. You know, knowing he's thinking of her, you know, she teases him before flipping him off. Um... I think that Tom Holland, the director, was probably trying to get us to see that she has the power of sight. But again, what I said about, you know, playing for the, the comedic rather than terrifying, you know, it steps a bit too far into the parody territory. You know, it, he's going for a comic tone. Just the problem here is that the comedy isn't really funny. So, I mean, after a celebratory night of um, eating and drinking... On the way back from the country club, um, Heidi uh, distracts Billy while driving. And in the pharmacy, we get an appearance from Stephen King by the name of Mr. Bangor. Wah, wah. Uh, and the scene <clears throat> uh, climaxes uh, with the death of Lemke's daughter. Billy is soon expunged from all guilt by the court of law, but not Lemke, who delivers his curse. In the novel, by the way, Lemke is depicted as ancient with half of his nose rotted off. Here in the movie, I mean, he doesn't look nearly as old. Um, he only has like a sore on the nose. You know, it's a small nitpick, but it's just the old man makeup is not convincing to me. 
You know, soon enough, the curse starts taking effect. Uh, the fat suit effectively shrinks. You know, and, you know, I, I look, the novel felt like an EC Comics issue, you know, of Tales from the Crypt or a Tales from the Crypt episode of Tales from the Crypt. Um, you know, I mean, there's a certain level of that kind of cheese that's found within this movie, you know. So every, you know, uh, you know, bug-eyed expression that Baker gives to the camera doesn't feel that out of place. I mean, even as the fat suit diminishes around his face, I mean, his eyes still bug out. It never stops being comedic. He always plays it big. He always plays it broad. And at the dinner table, he plays a nightmare version of a glutton. And all of this is clearly intentional. You know, I mean, when given the opportunity to play a scene on a scale of 1 through 10, Baker chooses to dial it up to 20 every single time. You know, I mean, and keep in mind that Tales from the Crypt ran from 1990 to 1996. You know, and was popular throughout its run. It spawned two features. And so it shouldn't come as any surprise that this movie adheres to those broad comedic sensibilities. I mean, and director Tom Holland had worked on Tales from the Crypt, so it's natural for him to bring that style to the big screen. You know, and he, and he had done some of similar things with um, the movies Child Play and Fright Night. You know, those are both classics in the horror genre, and, and both movies are not meant to be taken seriously. I mean, I get it. He's not as if he's going to out of his way to, to make the, the air apparent, the shining. So, I mean, I recognize what he's going for. I just... I just don't think it's very effective. Now, it, it doesn't take long for, for Billy to show up at the judge's house, you know, sensing that something's wrong. It's unclear why he's there, because the judge's wife is the one who brings up the gypsies to the unbelieving Billy. So, I mean, if he doesn't believe in gypsy curses, then what prompted him to come to the house in the first place? It's just, eh, it's a scene with unnecessary conflict. You know, he just, he doesn't need to be convinced. Just let him simply believe. You know, regardless, we don't get to see the judge's transformation. Just as in the book, it's up to Mrs. Judge to convey the horror. However, it works in the books and doesn't work here. Remember, the movie is an audiovisual medium. This is an example where the movie should have deviated from the book and let us see the devolution of the judge, or the de-evolution of the judge. You know, we'd get a sense of the horror without seeing it. And the scene's full of fluff. Billy calls Janelli to discuss gypsy curses. Rather than teasing around and asking for help as he did in the book, he calls in order to get information about gypsies, and we learn that one who gives the curse is the one that has to remove it. Billy goes to the chief of police, whose skin is bursting with sores and inflammation. As soon as Billy leaves, he shoots himself to put himself out of his misery. Billy employs his private detective firm to find out where the gypsies are. Billy then heads out on the road to find them. We are then treated to an absurd, an absurdly over-the-top dream sequence. I mean, and this thing feels like it goes on forever. And it involves the alligator man judge, a crazed Carrie were chasing Billy through the fair with a slingshot while screaming at the top of her lungs, and Lemke driving a big rig. You know, as it transpired and I realized it was a dream sequence, I was just kind of hoping that it wasn't a dream sequence and the movie just got that zany. If that happened, I would like the movie so much more. I wouldn't be bashing it. I would be lauding it to the heavens. Anyway, I mean, like just like in the book, he tracks the gypsies down at their camp. Um, and it's pretty anticlimactic. It's not filled with any danger whatsoever, except... For the danger that, that, that comes with the fact that Burke delivers every line reading like he's Christian Bale's Batman. I get that he's losing weight. I just don't understand how that translates, translates to a gravelly voice. 
He's shot through the hand with the slingshot, uh, calls Janelli. Janelli arrives to save the day. Um, and at this point, let's talk about the makeup. Okay, the fat suit wasn't great. It wasn't awful. It worked. I know earlier I said it wasn't great, but you know what? It, it did its job, and the special effects did okay at shrinking the fat with every scene. Again, not great, but not as awful as a lot of people seem to think. What is not great is the thin effect. It's an inherent problem with the movie. Okay, If you have a movie called Thinner, you have to make sure that you when, you, when he gets to the thin point, you're effectively selling that. I mean, once Burke gets down to his natural weight, there's no way to convincingly thin him any more than he already is. I mean, they, they add saggy flesh around his face and dress him in big clothes, but he still, to me, looks like an average-sized guy. The thin makeup winds up looking like old man makeup. Now, I'm not advocating for actors to thin themselves, but um, when Christian Bale, in the, and I don't know why I'm talking about Christian Bale so much in this episode, but um, when Christian Bale goes on... Um, that extreme diet that he did in The Machinist. And we see how thin a body can get. And if you haven't checked out that movie, um, check it out simply for his transformation, um, which is, I'll, I'll say it right now, I mean, it's dangerous, but it's incredibly impressive. I mean, it looked like he should be starring in this movie. Now, if that Bale at that time had been cast in this role with that body weight, he could have been cast in a fat suit um, so by the time it was time to show the effects of the curse, you remove all that fat prosthetic and you're left with an unhealthy, gaunt appearance of a method actor. Again, I'm not advocating for this, right? You know, by all accounts, what Christian Bale did was dangerous for his health. Uh, but if that guy was cast in this role, people would be talking about this role. People would talk about this movie. People are not talking about this movie. This movie is forgettable. And one of the reasons it's forgettable is because the effects um, did not effectively convey the effect that was needed. Then uh, Janelli shows up to help, which includes leaving signs and poisoning dogs. Uh, and the thing about Joe Montana is that whenever he talks, all I can think about is Fat Tony from The Simpsons. You know, the fact that he plays Springfield's resident mob boss makes his inclusion in the movie that much more fun. Pretty much like anything else in the movie, the events play out exactly like the book, with Janelli waging a one-man war in the gypsy camp. The only thing in the film... Um, what they decide to include uh, is the death of Gina's husband, you know, who's shot by the gypsies when running towards them in the firefight. Um, I don't know. I, I just, the filmmakers also include a scene where Janelli takes Gina to Billy's location to kill her. She's kept alive only because of Billy's interference. Um, one touch that I like is how the filmmakers show Janelli's sadism by balancing a jar of uh, acid on her forehead. You know, and then the uh, the end plays out similarly uh, as it does in the ending of the book, you know, with a couple of exceptions. Um, one, Heidi eats the pie and is met with an immediate gruesome death. The big change, you know, I don't know if it's big, but I mean, it is a change, is that it doesn't end with Billy sitting down to eat his pie, um, but with him offering uh, the pie to the doctor. Um, who in the movie was heavily implied to be having an affair with Heidi. Uh, whether that was happening or whether it was in Billy's mind the entire time, it's never made clear. And it doesn't have to be. you know. So Billy offers him the pie, invites him into the house, closes the door, boom, that's the end of the movie. Now, if this movie appeared on Saturday night at 11 o'clock and was introduced by the Crypt Keeper and was a half an hour long, I'd probably enjoy it. 
it would be a fun, cheesy entry in the pantheon of Tales from the Crypt episodes. The problem is, is that it's an hour and a half. It has no business being that long. With a Crypt episode, the stories are short, so they can be as sugary and cheesy as they want to be. It's designed that way. This is different. This is a movie. A long-ass movie. And I love sugar, but I don't want to eat it for 90 minutes. The tone wears thin and just can't sustain itself for an hour and a half. Now, book versus movie. I'm not even going to break it down. I'm sorry, guys. Typically, in a book versus movie head-to-head battle, I go through the scenes. I go through um, you know, any notable uh, distinctions, how it played out in the movie versus the book, how the characters acted in the book as opposed to the movie, and then you know, tally it up and give you the results at the end. But nope. No. No, I'm sorry, guys. Um, it's it's just a book. Everything about the book is better than the movie. Um, the book is better than the movie. The end. And that's all that I got uh, for now. Um, and just so you guys know, typically at this point, I would say come back next week for my review of, and then I would state the name of what I'm reviewing. But um, I'm recording... I'm currently recording five episodes in the span of... Um, a day, maybe a day and a half. So I don't know exactly the order that I'll be putting them out. Um, so there will be an episode next week. Don't worry about that. That is that is not negotiable. There will be an episode next week. I just don't know. Um, I know that's supposed to be in the chronological order of publication, but right now I'm in the middle of the, the Bachman books. I just don't know how I'm releasing all of the, the Bachman books yet. So um, what that means is uh, I just... Next week's going to be a surprise for you. Uh, I just don't know what it is, um, how it's going to play out. But uh, make sure you definitely tune in next week for a review of something. I have like 12 of them ready to go. So um, that's that's pretty exciting. So if you haven't done so already, feel free to um, subscribe and write a review on iTunes. Um, uh, the reason I keep pushing this is because it uh, the more subscriptions I get on iTunes, just the higher up on the listings it goes, and it just makes it easier for search engines, um, you know, and and it would get the podcast out there to a broader audience. Uh, so that's that. That's that. Um, and as always, like I said, I love interacting um, with listener emails, um, and I'll be making a change to the podcast. Um, very, very soon based on some suggestions that I got from um, a listener. So please, I, I definitely take your feedback into consideration. So if there's anything that you would like included or changed, um, definitely feel free to, to drop me a line and I just might do it like uh, I'm going to do in some upcoming episodes. So everyone, please have a great week. Do something for yourselves. Treat yourself. Um, and I'll see you here uh, next week, same King Time, same King Channel. Actually, you know what? Now that I realize that I say that, I publish my reviews all on different days. Sometimes I do them on Sundays. Sometimes I do them on Saturdays, Fridays. I released, um, I just released a Talisman two-part review on uh, on a Thursday this week. So it's I've been lying to you guys this entire time. Uh, maybe I need a new end closer. So if you can think of one, uh, write in at StephenKingCast.com. In the meantime, I will lie to you and say, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King Cast. Yeah, look out there, it's painted red and white.